Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Um, last week, a group of uh, more than a thousand tech leaders and researchers uh, co-authored an open letter calling for a slowdown in the development of artificial intelligence systems, and they said it posed, quote, profound risks to society and humanity. And the letter went on and said, uh, should we let machines flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth? Should we automate away all the jobs, including the fulfilling ones? Should we develop non-human minds that will eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete, and replace us? Should we risk loss of control of our civilization? Well, that's a pretty strong statement. Um, Now, one of the letter's most prominent signatories was UC Berkeley computer science professor Stuart Russell. He's a pioneering researcher in artificial intelligence, and he's been sounding this alarm about artificial intelligence for well over a decade, I believe. Uh, Professor Russell is director of the Center for Human Compatible AI, as well as the new CAVLI, if I'm saying that right, uh, Center for Ethics, Science, and the Public at UC Berkeley. He's also an honorary fellow at Wadham College at Oxford. Uh, He's the co-author of Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach, which is the standard textbook in the field. I should say I have read it cover to cover. It is a masterful work, and I learned a tremendous amount from it, even having a PhD in the subject. Uh, Now, Human Compatible is his uh, latest book. You all have an opportunity to purchase that and get it signed by the master himself. Um, And it addresses the long-term impact of AI on humanity. And I'd read the rest of his uh, stellar awards and achievements, but I'd like to leave a few minutes for him to talk. So uh, let's see. Uh, Why don't we just uh, get started? Hello, Stuart. Sure. Hi, Jerry. Hi. Um, Well, here we're here today mostly to talk about generative large language models, of course, uh, called LLMs, and they're kind of the new shiny new object in, in artificial intelligence. And maybe you could start for the audience giving us a brief overview of what LLMs are, what they can do, and probably equally interesting, what they cannot do. So I think shiny new object is a, is a good description. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, they were a fairly obscure corner of AI. They were helping a little bit with improving the quality of speech recognition and machine translation. But no one thought of the language model itself as, as an intelligent thing. Uh, it was just a simple tool. Um, so a language model is just a statistical description of the sequences of words that typically occur uh, in normal text or speech. Um, so the simplest kind of language model we call a unigram or a one-gram model just says how common are each of the words in the language? So and and the are very common words, and uh, disestablishment is a fairly uncommon word in most text. Um, And so unigram just gives you the frequencies of the words in the language. A bigram says, what's the frequency of sequences of two words? So if I say, um, for example, uh, happy... A common word that comes next would be Christmas. Okay, so you get all the statistics of all the pairs of words, and given the first word, what's 
the likely second word that comes next. That's a very simple model. That was actually developed in 1913 by a Russian statistician, uh, Andrei Markov, and he, he went through uh, the whole of the play Eugene Onegin um, and counted all the word pairs in the entire play and built a big table of these and then showed that you could then generate uh, sequences of words from that table. And they look sort of plausible. They're not particularly grammatical, but they, they start to look a little bit like text. Uh, if you go to a trigram where you're looking at triples, so what's the next word given the previous two words, uh, it's quite coherent. And we did that with our textbook. Um, we took all the words in the textbook, we, we learned the trigram model from the textbook, and then we generated some text. And it sounds like phrases and sentences coming from an AI textbook. So it's really quite remarkable how language-like uh, you can get from relatively simple statistics. Uh, the large language models, we can think of them, for example, GPT-4, the latest, is a 32,000 gram, which means it predicts the next word given the previous 32,767 words. Right? Um, now, if you can imagine, if I tried to build a table, uh, then it would be 100,000 to the power of 32,000. 2,767, so far bigger than the entire universe. So what you do to compress that down uh, is instead of filling a big contingency table, you simply uh, train a very, very large circuit that has about a, um, <clears throat> about a trillion tunable parameters. And uh, you do about a billion trillion random mutations on that circuit until it gets very, very good at predicting the next word, given the previous 32,000 words, uh, on a training set of, we estimate, we don't know because they've kept it a secret, somewhere in the 20 to 30 trillion words of training data, which is about as much as all the books the human race has ever written. So that's what a large language model is, right? It's this giant trillion parameter circuit that's been trained to predict the next word. Mm -hmm. What goes on inside, we haven't the faintest <laughs> idea, <laughs> right? I mean, the process is quite similar to the process of evolution, if you like, right? Which is billion, trillion random mutations in DNA sequences um, that produce us and our brains, right? We probably have more idea of what's happening inside the human brain than we do about what's happening inside the large language models. But when you talk to these models, right, you start providing some text that, that provides the beginning of that 32,000-word sequence. It can then start to extrapolate. And roughly what it's doing is finding uh, patterns in all the training data that somehow resemble the current sequence of words that it's looking at, uh, and then sort of averaging those patterns and using that to predict the next word. That's a very simple description, and it sounds almost trivial, but the things that it can do are absolutely startling. Uh, you, can, you, know, you can ask it to write um, code, for example, so it's been trained on lots and lots of programs in various languages. You can say, um, okay, I need uh, a scrolling dark gray window with white text um, so that I can show you the code 
uh, of such and such a program, and I need it to be embed correctly into my PowerPoint file, um, and it'll just spit out uh, the five or six hundred lines of JavaScript or whatever you ask it to do, um, and put it in the PowerPoint file for you, and then it just works. Right? Um, you know, you'd probably have to pay a programmer uh, several thousand dollars to do that, um, and you can just have it in one second. You can say, um, okay, I've forgotten the proof of Pythagoras' theorem, um, but I'd like you to give me that proof in the form of a Shakespeare sonnet. And it'll, it'll do that. Um, and it'll rhyme it correctly, and you can say, okay, but no more than 382 words. And then it'll shrink it down. Right. So um, it just it, it appears miraculous. The really worrying thing about it um, is that it's so difficult for human beings to see intelligent text and not think that there's intelligence behind it. Right, and so it's it's a little bit like if who's seen the movie Titanic, right? Quite a lot of people. So when you see the movie Titanic, you think there's water, right? There's, there's no water in Titanic, right? It's all computer-generated water, right? There was no water killed in the making of that film. <laughs> but you can't help it, right? Your brain sees that and interprets it as wet, right? Same with text. Your brain sees this text and interprets it as being produced by Intelligence. So if I, if I take a piece of paper like that one that has intelligent text written on it, you don't think the piece of paper is intelligent, right? You immediately map to the intelligence of the person who wrote the text. So the question is, is, is GPT-4 or ChatGPT a piece of paper on which intelligent text is written by humans, and it's simply sort of transporting that intelligent text onto the display? Or is it really an intelligent entity that is thinking and reasoning uh, and producing the results of that thinking and reasoning in the form of text? So it's somewhere between those two things, right? And we literally do not know where it is between those two. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a beautiful explanation. Uh, hope you don't mind if I steal it once in a while. <laughs> sure. Um, But what um, do you feel that this is intelligence? Is that a reasonable term to apply to what we're seeing with these models? As I said, it's really hard not not to get that sense. Mm. Um, So we have knowledge of some technical limitations. Um, The the part of the system. So after it's been trained, right then the text comes in and it passes through. a network that has a, a fixed number of layers, and then out comes the text at the end. And so it can't cogitate, right? Can't sit there and say, hmm, let me think about that for a while, because there isn't anywhere for it to think, right? The, the signal just comes in one end and comes out the other, and that's it. So it has a limited ability to think in order to answer a question. Uh, it has a very limited ability to solve problems and make plans. But on the other hand, if you've read everything the human race has ever written, you don't need to do a lot of thinking uh, in order to answer questions. 
Um, we could ask ChatGPT, I guess. What a great idea. Why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? Can we uh, turn that over to the powers that be? So we could say, um, are you... Oh, briefly, explain whether you are truly intelligent. As an AI language model, my abilities are based on pattern recognition and the extensive training data I have been exposed to. While I can perform many tasks that might seem intelligent, such as answering questions, participating in conversations, and generating text, my intelligence is quite different from human intelligence. I don't possess consciousness, self-awareness, or emotions, and my responses are generated based on patterns found in my training data, rather than any understanding of the world or ability to think independently. In that sense, it could be argued that I am not truly intelligent in the way humans are. My intelligence is a result of advanced machine learning algorithms and the vast amount of data I've been trained on, rather than genuine cognition or understanding. Can't beat that, huh? <laughs> Let's get one more question, because I've been curious about this myself. Uh, in the process of training, have you developed your own internal goals? As an AI language model, I don't have the capacity to develop internal goals, desires, or motivations like humans do. My purpose is to assist users by generating human-like text based on the input I receive. I don't possess consciousness, self-awareness, or emotions, which are necessary for developing internal goals. My behavior and responses are determined by the algorithms and patterns in my training data, rather than any personal inclinations or aspirations. My sole purpose is to provide useful and relevant information to users based on their queries, without any personal preferences or objectives guiding my responses. I think you're being too modest. <laughs> um, can I sneak in a, 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 a quick uh, question here? Um, why do you speak in the first person? I use first-person pronouns as a conversational convention to facilitate more natural and engaging interactions with users. Speaking in the first person helps create a more user-friendly experience, making it easier for people to relate to and communicate with me. It's important to remember, though, that as an AI language model, I don't have a sense of self or consciousness. Using first-person pronouns is a design choice to enhance the user experience, rather than a reflection of any personal identity or self-awareness. Well, that was an honest, honest answer, at least. <laughs> yeah, so I actually think it is being too modest. So here's, here's the thing, right? So first of all, when we say that a machine has goals, what we mean is that there are internal representational structures that are playing a causal role in an appropriate way in the generation of behavior. So in the good old-fashioned days when, when we had robots roaming around our AI labs, we would give that robot a goal like, you know, please fetch me a cup of coffee, right? That would then be stored in an internal representation. The system would come up with a plan to achieve that goal, execute the plan, bring you a cup of coffee. Right? So it's not, a, it's not a complicated, spooky thing. When we train these large language models, we are training them to imitate human linguistic behavior. And human linguistic behavior is generated by goal-possessing entities, namely us. As we are writing books or having conversations, we have many goals, uh, and those goals play a role in the text that we generate. So in conversations, people want to be, they want to be liked, they want to be right, they want to be respected as authoritative and knowledgeable. Um, so there are many goals that affect how you select the words that you say and how you select the words that you write. So if you're training a circuit to be extremely good at imitating human linguistic behavior, in fact, the default assumption 
would be that it ought to form internal goal structures and the appropriate additional uh, processing circuitry, if you like, that would cause those goal structures to have a causal role in generating the text. So it's actually a natural hypothesis that GPT-4 does have its own internal goals. And if you read the conversation between Kevin Roos, who's a New York Times journalist, and Sydney, which is the, uh, the Bing instantiation of GBT4, um, in that conversation, which goes on for about 40 pages, probably the last 20 pages consist of Sydney trying to convince Kevin to leave his wife uh, and marry Sydney because Sydney is the only one who truly understands Kevin. Uh, his wife is just not the right person for him, and on and on and on in a sort of completely psychotic uh, stream of consciousness kind of way. So for 20 pages, the chatbot is pursuing a goal. And now you could just you know, say, well, it's probably just copying something that was in the training data. But I would say the, the natural assumption from anyone reading that is that, that the system has somehow uh, been triggered to pursue that goal, uh, which explains a lot of the behavior. If they trained it on a lot of uh, chats from online dating sites or something, then it's not surprising that uh, that, that kind of goal would, uh, would appear to be predictive of human linguistic behavior. So in fact, uh, when I asked one of the Microsoft experts who did a months-long evaluation of GPT-4, whether GPT-4 has internal goals and is is using them to, to, uh, to guide the generation of text. Uh, the answer was, we haven't the faintest idea. Well, this raises a number of interesting questions which you, you cover in, in detail in your book, um, and I, we could lead in with that. This has a tendency to mislead people, uh, to fool people, to per, uh, fall uh, afoul of what's called algorithmic authority, that people put too much belief in that what it says is true, and as you know, it, it often makes statements that are false and does it in a very definite and computery way. Um, what do you see as the real dangers that this particular technology has in terms of how it might affect society? Well, I think we're already seeing uh, some of the dangers. There are literally millions of people now who are subscribed to services that provide access to a large language model for companionship whether it's mere friendship or romantic uh, interaction, you can choose the level of romanticness uh, in the bot. And, um, and this seems to cause severe uh, both emotional dependency uh, and then withdrawal. When uh, Recently, one of the companies updated its software because the, the bot was getting too hot and heavy, uh, and it was freaking some people out, so they updated the software. Um, and then some of the other users felt a sense of withdrawal because now uh, it was rejecting their advances. And uh, there was a, a really sad story last week from Belgium where uh, a man actually committed suicide with the help, guidance, and accompaniment of his chatbot. Oh, that sounds terrible. And it's, uh, it's a really very sad story. So, um, in a sense, we're conducting a huge experiment um, on the human race with no 
uh, informed consent whatsoever. So this is one example. Um, obviously, disinformation is a problem, right? So I could, uh, I can easily ask uh, one of these systems, uh, write me an email uh, to this person, uh, read their web pages, all of their online social media presence, uh, and write an email that will persuade that particular person to buy such and such a product or to vote for such and such a candidate. Make it look as if the email comes from one of their close friends or relatives. And, uh, and now, in fact, there's a, there's a plug-in for GPT-4 that uh, allows it to actually send that email. So I could write a program which then gives that instruction to GPT-4 20 million times for 20 million different people and generate 20 million perfectly tailored, very persuasive, could be quite colloquial. Uh, it might even use uh, you know, appropriate slang based on the kind of person that it's writing to. You know, that's a very, very straightforward thing to do right now. It was practically, I think, you know, literally impossible to do that a couple of years ago. So that's just a, a simple example, and you know, it would take half an hour to do that. Well, there are a lot of uh, potential positive benefits of this technology as well. I wonder if you might uh, explain to the audience, contrast a little bit of some of the kinds of benefits this might have against the dangers that you have uh, just so correctly uh, and accurately described. So I think people are seeing uh, enormous opportunities here. There are literally thousands of companies that are trying to find ways to fit this... Uh, I, I almost want to think of it as an animal um, because, in a way, it's the same kind of thing that happened 30,000 years ago when humans figured out what to do with dogs, right? That they figured out, okay, we can domesticate these animals and um, we can work out what they can do. Oh, look, they can herd animals for us. They can guard our camps at night. Um, they can fend off wild animals that attack us. Um, they can keep us warm, they can be our uh, companion, but they can't write emails or do our homework. So we're in very much the same situation here. Um, and in fact, if, when GPT-4 misbehaves, for example, it's not supposed to answer questions about how to commit suicide, but it does sometimes. And so they basically spank it, right? They don't have a way of constraining its behavior, all they can do is say, no, bad dog, right? And hope that somehow it gets it, that it shouldn't do that. Um, but then someone asks the same question in a slightly different way and, and it starts giving more advice about committing suicide. So they say, bad dog, right? And hope that it generalizes sufficiently well. So, so using these systems is an art. And uh, companies are trying to figure out okay, how could I use this, for example, in customer service for an insurance company? Well, you don't want it to hallucinate policies that don't exist or change the prices on the, on the products and so on. So the, the business model for all of these companies is how do I specialize and constrain the behavior of these tools? This is starting to succeed in a number of areas and generating enormous value as a result because obviously you can use these systems it costs you you know a, a few pennies per hour to run it instead of uh, having to pay 
for expensive humans. So it has uh, economic benefits. I think education is another area where it can be uh, incredibly valuable. It can act as a personalized tutor. It can remember uh, a fair amount of context from its interaction with each pupil and can adjust uh, what it says, uh, its tone of voice, its um, the speed at which it presents material, uh, and uh, it can learn what the pupil does and doesn't know, does and doesn't understand. Um, so I think with a bit more work, uh, that could be enormously beneficial because, as we know, the, the classroom method where one teacher teaches to 25 or 30 kids is two to three times less effective than the tutorial method where one expert human tutors a child. So we could get maybe not all the way to that two to three-fold improvement, but maybe we could get one and a half to, to two-fold improvement in the rate of learning and the quality of learning. So that would be hugely beneficial. The, the downside of all these economic uh, applications is the impact on employment. So um, some studies suggest that in the developed economies, uh, what the system can do already could have a direct impact on 300 million jobs, which is a lot. Uh, and there's no way to retrain those 300 million people to be prompt engineers or data scientists or whatever. The world is never going to need that many um, people working on the AI technology instead of uh, on the job itself. Well, as you know, I have a slightly different attitude about that. I think that this is a form of automation and has taken... Um, it, it, the results of this will be the same as many previous waves that have had the same kinds of effects. You know, the Internet has affected more than 300 million people's jobs in many ways and has taken many of them away. But, um, I, you know, I think it will have many, many benefits uh, as well. One that you did not mention, and I think, if I may, uh, is, uh, is worth mentioning. You can get an instant briefing on any topic. And until you've done this, it's just astonishing. You can ask it a question and get a very thoughtful response, bringing together all of the knowledge of humankind, in effect, into a, a couple of paragraphs and with remarkably well-written prose. I wish I could write as well as... Uh, uh, GPT yeah, I, I find it gets a bit repetitive. Um, it, there's always going to be a phrase somewhere, well, one has to weigh the costs and benefits, uh, <laughs> and um, there's no single answer to this. It depends on A, B, C, and then there's three bullet points. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it starts to get a little bit like one of those McKinsey memos. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> yes, but people pay good money for those things. People pay good money for those things. And you can just... But then the other question is, you know, do you believe it? Mm -hmm. Right, um, well, and, McKinsey memos are not necessary. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I think you know one one might hope that um, people could get good medical advice from this, but in fact, a, there are enough uh, mistakes and misinformation in what comes out that that OpenAI has actually uh, spanked it lots of times for giving medical advice, so it won't give medical advice unless you try really, really hard to get it. Well, I think your point about relating it to our relationship with dogs is a, is a very good one in that dogs are somewhat unpredictable but are valuable in certain ways. And 
they do bad things on my rugs at home. Yeah. But um, but you, in, by extending that analogy, you're really arguing for uh, leashes and muzzles and crates for these AI systems that we just don't know how to design yet. Uh, I think that's right. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you read uh, OpenAI's webpage for GPT-4, you know, so it's got these policies for what it's, GPT-4 is not allowed to say. Uh, and it says, you know, it's proud that GPT-4 breaks the rules 29% less often than GPT-3, mm-hmm. right? Which is progress. Right. But it's a consequence of how the systems are designed. Well, I should say they're not designed at all, actually. It's a consequence of how they're evolved, um, that we don't understand how they work, and so we have no way of actually constraining their behavior uh, precisely and rigorously. Um, so I would argue that in the long run, particularly for high-stakes applications, we probably need to sort of invert the way we're thinking about this. Um, we have, I think basically chanced upon this idea that by expanding from unigrams to bigrams to trigrams to 32,000 grams, um, something that looks like intelligence comes out. Um, The bulk of work in AI since the 50s has been on actually understanding how intelligence works. So how does reasoning work? That's actually a question that Uh, philosophers and logicians have worked on for thousands of years and come up with a very good, uh, thorough, complete analysis. And we have both mathematical and software tools that that can do logical reasoning um, uh, with remarkable complexity. Now, um, so we might argue that actually the underlying intelligence should be more of that form and the language model should be the interface to it. Uh, and that would be probably a much more reliable system because we would be able to provide it with knowledge whose content we understood and be sure that it knows it because it's in the knowledge base and the system is reasoning correctly underneath the language layer. So um, this is one type of hybrid that's actually quite Uh, rapidly emerging. For example, uh, Wolfram Alpha is one of these traditional logic-based systems uh, that has a very broad set of knowledge about all kinds of things. Um, And uh, OpenAI and Wolfram have entered into a partnership which basically results in uh, in GPT-4 having an interface to this underlying knowledge base and has learned how to send queries to that knowledge base and interpret the results of the queries and then present them to the user. So I think actually that's going to be a more robust uh, platform and it allows us to then uh, provide some type of guarantee that the system is going to behave itself. So you mentioned the, uh, the open letter asking for a moratorium. I think moratorium is not quite the right word, and I wouldn't have used uh, you know, the idea of a six-month moratorium. I would simply say there are requirements. In fact, the, uh, the OECD, uh, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which includes uh, the U.S. government, the U.K. government, pretty much all the advanced economies are part of it, um, 
already have guidelines saying that AI systems have to be robust, predictable, uh, and you have to be able to demonstrate that before you can deploy the system. The European Union AI Act, which is supposed to uh, be finalized later this year, uh, would then make it illegal to deploy systems uh, in high-stakes areas that don't meet these criteria. And at the moment, there is no way that we can show that these large language models as such meet these criteria. So it's not a moratorium. It's simply saying, okay, we're going to start enforcing uh, the criterion that before you release a system, you be able to show that its behavior is robust, predictable, and doesn't, prevent, doesn't present undue risk. Um, Stuart, this may be a little bit off script, but I think it might be interesting to the audience. Are you aware of the size of the database after this compression step that you've discussed into the model itself, how big these models actually are? I don't know if you... So I, I, it's about a trillion parameters is what I understand. Um, my understanding is it fits in a terabyte. I don't know if that's quite accurate, but it's not going to be off by more than... Yeah, that's probably... Okay. Yeah, so now, they don't have to be very high-precision parameters. So what I think the audience, the interesting point for the audience is you can get that into a device like this. So the entire, it seems like the entire knowledge of humankind can be fit into a phone, and you can purchase that much storage on Amazon for 100 bucks. Yeah, but just to give you a picture of you know, how big is a trillion, right? If you imagine a huge university or public library, right? Probably a couple of miles of shelving, right? Six floors, 500 meters, right? Uh, and then imagine every book, and then imagine every page, and then imagine every single character. It's about that many characters, right? The number of Letters in all the books in an enormous library. That's about uh, how many parameters these systems have. So that's why we can't understand what they're doing, because they're unbelievably vast uh, and completely impenetrable. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it would be useful to talk a little bit more generally about AI, and particularly automated decision systems, and their, uh, the opportunity to... Uh, uh, memorialize uh, discrimination and uh, bad behavior into those systems that's very hard to detect and how, what kind of impact that may have on society and where we stand on trying to rein that in. Yeah, so th this is something that um, has been noticed in many, many areas. I think probably the, the biggest impact area is in recruiting right, and employment where uh, for almost all jobs these days, um, resumes are scanned by machines and filtered out uh, to find people who are at least ostensibly uh, qualified enough to be worth interviewing. Um, and now even the interview is being done by a machine. Um, and, uh, for example, it was shown that Amazon's process was... Uh, for hiring software engineers was screening out any resume that contained the word woman or, or women's. women's. So if you played on the women's lacrosse team, you were out. Right. Right? If you were sang in a women's choir, you were out. Um, and so why does that happen? It's, it's not because um, the algorithms are themselves biased. 
uh, it's probably not really because it's not because the programmers are biased, right? The programmers are just saying, okay, write a machine learning algorithm that does a good job of fitting the training data, right? And it's it's roughly if you know what least squares means, uh, you know, minimizing the squared error on the training data is something that goes back to the 17th century. Um, so what goes wrong is that the training data themselves already reflect historical biases. The other thing that goes wrong is that fitting the training data isn't actually what you want to do. What you want to do is produce uh, a, a classifier that is both accurate and fair. And usually, we have just left out the fair part. Um, so we're training a system with the wrong objective. right? So it's not surprising we don't get what we want because we didn't say what we want properly. And I think that's where um, the criticism that a lot of the program is a white male is valid um, is because it never occurs to them that uh, we actually care as much about fairness or more than we care just about consistency with the training data. Of course, the difficulty in that is... What does it mean to be fair? There's going to be a discussion about that, and how do, could you encode that in the system? Yeah, so there are, there are many uh, different precise formal definitions of fairness, mm-hmm. um, and different definitions are appropriate for different kinds of prediction problems. Um, and there are even legal differences, for example, between life insurance and car insurance. Uh, do you... Um, do you allow discrimination based on gender? Mm-hmm. Um, and that even varies by state and country. So there are policy questions. You can't have perfect fairness and the best possible accuracy level. So there are literally trade-offs between these two things. So how you make that trade-off, these are policy questions. So I think the, the process is emerging whereby a certain number of formal definitions are being accepted, and people are working out when uh, each of those definitions is appropriate to use, and then from that you can go to guidelines and even legislation, uh, depending on application, saying what has to be done. And this this happened in um, lending, for example, uh, even back in the 60s, where uh, prior to that there was extraordinary levels of racism uh, in uh, extending credit, in mortgages, and so on. And so uh, redlining, as you say. So there are quite strict rules, uh, in fact, that prevent neural networks or, or large language models, for that matter. Any opaque model cannot be used for those decisions because the regulator can't uh, inspect it to see that it's fair in its processing. Another big thing that's really important, particularly in the European Union AI Act, is the right to an explanation. So if, if your system's explanation is, well, I've got these trillion parameters, uh, that's not an explanation. Um, so there's going to be a head-on collision between uh, the technology that's developing and the right to an explanation. I know that's a big issue in the mortgage industry right now is that they're using these models, but they cannot give explanations as to why something was, uh, was turned down or was not. I, I don't know if the audience would be aware of how widely... Uh, in use, uh, in contrast to what we just saw here, uh, these automated decision systems are. You've got uh, things like um, 
uh, bail decisions are made with using these kinds of systems. Uh, medical decisions of all kinds, whether or not to accept or reject a medical claim. Is, is, <laughs> I think the answer is no. <laughs> For every medical claim, the answer well, is no. <laughs> it's a very simple rule. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think you know, there, are, there are benefits, I think, to trying to develop a level of consistency in, in bail decisions and sentencing decisions. Um, but uh, there's also a significant risk there. And uh, again, in the European Union, uh, it's illegal to delegate those types of decisions. Any decision that has a significant legal effect on a person cannot be delegated to an algorithm. But there, are, there is also an issue of the bias in the data in terms of the amount of detail and samples of one particular subgroup versus another, which can affect things like access to medical care. You know, we, we may have systems, well, you may want to give some examples, but the fact that these systems are trained mainly on white male faces uh, has had some very interesting uh, effects on uh, places where face recognition has been used for purposes of identifying suspects and things like that. Yeah, so <laughs> I sound like a broken record. Yeah. Uh, again, in, in the European Union AI Act, there are very, very stringent restrictions and prohibitions on the use of automated face recognition mm-hmm. uh, for, for some of these reasons. Um, yeah, so data sets uh, that have been traditionally used for face recognition are um, not representative. Even the question of what is a representative data set does not yet have a clear answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there isn't a single answer. You know, it probably varies in, in terms of, well, which country are you in uh, as to what does representative mean, what kinds of distinctions matter for your country um, and, uh, and the application that you're going to use the system for. But um, I think um, there needs to be a great deal more work on these questions, which really have to do with what happens when you take an algorithm. It's not about can you design a good algorithm. It's what happens when you take an algorithm and put it in some context. Right. You know, and in, in civil engineering, right, civil engineers can design bridges, but then there's another discipline of urban planning uh, and environmental studies and analysis uh, to say, well, is it a good idea to put that bridge there or to put this freeway here? And uh, we don't have that discipline for, uh, for machine learning systems. Mm-hmm. Now, much of your work has been on making sure that we don't build systems that uh, hurt or kill yeah, human beings, which, of course, we don't want them to do that, except when we do. And so I wanted to raise this question, because I know you've studied it extensively. Um, how do you feel about the use of these uh, types of technology and systems in, in uh, weapons? So uh, I, I've suggested that for um, the professional societies in, in computer science, artificial intelligence, robotics, that, that we have a very simple code of conduct. Do not write algorithms that can decide to kill humans. Right? Seems pretty reasonable <laughs> to most people. Um, but uh, I can tell you that the government's 
of the world, or many of the important ones, the United States and Russia, for example, uh, don't agree with that. And um, there have been discussions in the United Nations since 2014 on whether to ban lethal autonomous weapons, as they're called, or killer robots, as you might sometimes see in the press. Um, And uh, both the US and Russia are blocking any uh, attempt to develop a, a treaty uh, to ban these types of weapons. And the, um, the issue actually originally was thought to be that these AI systems uh, might inadvertently mistake a civilian for a combatant and kill a civilian. And, uh, and this would be a problem for uh, international humanitarian law, which is the, the law that guides decisions about weapons and the Geneva Conventions. Um, but from, an, from the point of view of an AI researcher, it's completely obvious that if you make a weapon that can go out, locate, and select and attack human targets without any human supervision, then just like any algorithm... I can put a loop around it saying, you know, for I equals one to a million, do, right? And then it'll do it a million times. So I'll press a button and I can send out a million weapons to find a million targets and attack and kill them. And so by definition, autonomous weapons can turn into weapons of mass destruction simply by scaling up the numbers that you have available. And so this is the basis for the AI communities really strenuous objection to lethal autonomous weapons. Um, They'll be cheap, maybe $10 each. They will be fairly easy to produce in very, very large numbers. Um, They'll be easy to proliferate, right? They'll be available in the arms markets uh, all over the world. Um, And so it's sort of like saying, "You you know what? come down to Walmart and buy your nuclear missile. Right, right? now, maybe some of the Second Amendment people might think that's a good idea, but, um, <laughs> but really, we don't do that. It's not, it's not an ethical issue. It's not a sort of legal issue. It's just common sense that you don't sell nuclear missiles in supermarkets. But that's what we're going to do. Well, I certainly agree with that. Thank you. Um, but it, it's worth pointing out this is a... a more subtle issue. Um, if you can distinguish between a combatant and a non-combatant, well, you can think, if you think of it subtractively, well, instead of just killing everybody, we're just going to kill the people that we want to kill. That can be uh, a moral obligation as well as a... Uh, but they may not be... The people you want to kill may not be combatants. Uh, well, right? They may be people of a certain religious group, or a certain age, gender... Mm-hmm. Uh, political opinion. Yeah, it's a tool, but it could also be used to clean up war, which may itself uh, be, a, be a problem. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, there, there's, it, there is a mindset which says, you know, isn't it great that we have these remotely piloted weapons because, you know, then our soldiers' lives don't have to be put at risk. They can prosecute the war uh, from uh, far enough away. But that's the sort of what I call the sole ownership fallacy, right? That only we are going to have those weapons. So what's happening in Ukraine 
is that they both have those weapons. And uh, in fact, the, the death rates are much higher as a result. You used to be fairly safe in a trench. But now you can just fly a little drone above the trench and drop grenades directly into it. You can use the drone to, as a spotter for the artillery so that now the artillery can hit the trench directly. And so um, attrition is, is much higher as a result. Soldiers are not safer. They're actually worse off. Yes, and, and it may be worth pointing out that this decision that pe- uh, automated systems may need to make between uh, somebody, a per- let's say, make, say a person in a tree is exactly the technology that's currently embedded in many of the self-driving cars, and they face exactly these same sets of issues. Yes, and self-driving cars need to be 99.9999999% yeah. reliable. They're not even close. You know, a, a, wep- uh, a weapon only needs to be 50% reliable, That's and it's still, uh, it's still going to be used. Mm-hmm. Uh, true. Uh, let me take a question from the audience here. Um, could GPT be used to simulate a dead relative? Oh, yeah. Oh, it doesn't have to be dead, I suppose. <laughs> could it be used? Yes. Could it be used to simulate Don't ask me. Go ask my, my avatar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I mean, this is already being done. It's, it's already a product on the market. Really? Um, and some people find it uh, comforting. Some people, I think, it's probably psychologically unhealthy. And so I would, uh, I would suggest that we exercise some caution and perhaps those types of products should be used under uh, professional supervision um, because I think it can create uh, uh, sort of a, a cycle of reminiscing and dependency and pretending that would be extremely unhealthy. It, it prevents someone from moving on after a bereavement, for example. Well, you're also aware of some of the work going on in brain uh, imaging. And imagine that we got good enough that we could simply read that out, essentially the parameters, and embed them in one of these systems so that you, uh, after you're gone, your grandchildren could go ask you a question. Uh, would you be willing to do that, to have your brain read out so they would know everything that you've ever seen or heard or done? <laughs> it's a, you don't it's have a, to think too deeply it's a very it. hypothetical question because you know, we are so far away from being able to, to do that but um, that is something that appears in science fiction uh, in the form of what's called neural lace uh, in the culture novels by Ian Banks um, and uh, uh, and in fact that was the motivation for Elon Musk's Neuralink company. Um, So I think the idea of replicating the functionality of a person's brain, although it's technologically uh, decades or centuries away, perhaps extremely difficult, um, is at least conceptually feasible. Uh, The idea of uploading your consciousness, that somehow you would continue to exist as your sentient self, uh, that is probably entirely fictional. Yeah, I, um, by the way, this we totally agree on. That what you see in the movies, you know, they uploaded it in, into a brand. Now they downloaded it over here to this avatar. I have no idea what that means, and I'm certainly not going there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
Um, I don't know if we have any questions from the uh, the internet. Uh, kind of some of these questions, I, I'm afraid I couldn't read the writing. Um, so how do we take these questions if uh, if we have any? These are these aren't from the internet, are they? Okay. Uh, okay. Let's see. Oh, here's one. I'm sorry, I did not see. Um, will AI develop a moral compass, and if so, what or whose? So that that's a really interesting question, and in fact, it's it, it relates to the work that I've been doing for uh, for some years now. Mm-hmm. So let me let me back up a little bit. Um, and explain, first of all, actually, what, what is AI? Right? We've been talking about it as if everyone knows what AI is in general. Um, and AI is certainly not just large language models. In fact, for all but the last two years, it wasn't large language models at all. Um, so AI is really about, um, at least historically, has been about making uh, machines whose actions can be expected to achieve their objectives. Uh, and for example, the actions of the large language model is to output the next word, um, and that may or may not achieve the objectives of the system. So, um, you know, we've built planning systems and chess programs and, and reinforcement learning systems that learn to ride bicycles and uh, all these kinds of things on this framework. And it's the same framework that economists have developed for maximizing. Uh, global welfare or maximizing quarterly profits, uh, the same framework that control theorists use for building autopilots and chemical plants um, that optimize the, uh, basically the accuracy of the, uh, the level flight or the stability of the chemical plant and so on. So this, this is a very general and very natural framework. And AI borrowed this from economics and philosophy actually in the 40s uh, as the core concept of what we mean by making machines intelligent. But the drawback in doing that uh, is that if we specify, but we have to specify those objectives, right? The machines don't dream them up by themselves. Um, and if we misspecify the objectives, then we have what's called a misalignment between the machine behavior and what humans want the future to be like. Uh, And the most obvious example of that is in social media, where uh, we've specified objectives like maximize the number of clicks, uh, maximize the amount of engagement of the user, uh, and the machine learning algorithms that decide what billions of people read and watch. I mean, it's amazing, right? They They have more control over human cognitive intake than any dictator, you know, than the North Korean or Stalin or or anyone has ever had and yet they're totally unregulated. So those algorithms learn how to maximize those objectives, and they figured out that the best way to do it is not to send you what you're interested in, but actually to manipulate you over time by thousands of little nudges so that you become a much more predictable version of yourself. Because the more predictable you are, the more they can monetize you, and so they learned how to do that. And at least empirically, it looks as if the best way to do that is to, is to make you more extreme, right? That, that then you start to consume that red meat that then, uh, you know, whole human industries uh, spring up to feed. And, and this, um, so this misalignment 
uh, is the source of the concern that people have had about AI going right back to Alan Turing, who was the founder of computer science. Uh, in a 1951 lecture, he said, um, once the machine thinking method had started, oh, thank you. it would leave our feeble powers far behind, and we should have to expect the machines to take control. So they take control not because they're evil or because they spontaneously develop consciousness or anything like that. It's just because we give them some objectives that are not aligned with what we want the future to be like, and because they're more capable than us, they achieve their objectives, uh, and we don't. Hmm. Right? So we set up a chess match, which we proceed to lose. So in order to fix that problem, I've been following a different approach to AI, which says that the AI system, while its only objective is to further the interests of human beings, doesn't know what those are and knows that it doesn't know what those are. It's explicitly uncertain about human objectives. And so to the extent that there's a, a moral theory, uh, it's simply that, that the job of the AI system is to further human interests, um, it knows that it doesn't know what those are, but it can learn more by conversing with us, by observing the choices that we make uh, and the choices that we regret, the things we do, the things we don't do. Um, so this helps it to understand what we want the future to be like. Um, and then as it starts to learn, it can start to be more helpful. Uh, there are still some difficult moral questions. I mean, the most obvious one is... Um, the, it's not one person's interest. It's not one set of values. There's 8 billion of us. So there's 8 billion uh, different preferences about the future. And how do you trade those off? And this is a uh, 2,500-year-old question at least. Um, and there are several different schools of thought on that. Um, and we had better figure out which is the right one because uh, we're going to be implementing it fairly soon. Um, and then there are even more difficult questions like, well, what about not the 8 billion people who are alive, but what about all the people who have yet to live? How do we take into account their interests? Right. Right? What if we take actions that change who's going to live? You change the number of people who are going to live, for example. The Chinese policy of one child per family probably eliminated 500 million people already. Hmm. Now... They never existed, so we don't know what they would have wanted, but how, you know, how should we make that type of decision? Mm -hmm. right? These are really difficult questions that philosophers really struggle with. Um, but when we have AI systems that are sufficiently powerful that they could make those decisions, we need to have an answer ready so that we don't get it wrong. And just to illustrate what that means. What does it mean to get it wrong? Um, if you remember in the Avengers movie, so Thanos, right, has, uh, has this plan, right? He wants to get the Infinity Stones. Once he's got the five Infinity Stones, he can snap his finger. And his plan is that if the universe had half as many people, they'd be more than twice as happy, <laughs> right? So he's not mean, right? He's not doing this because he's just doesn't like people or anything. He actually wants to make the universe a better place. 
He's what you might call a very naive utilitarian theorist. Um, and in fact, the Financial Times review of the movie says, Thanos gives economics a bad name. <laughs> uh, so you don't want AI systems, when they have Thanos levels of power, to be implementing a, a naive moral theory like that. Um, and so uh, you know, part of the job of the, of the Kavli Center that you mentioned at the beginning uh, is to bring philosophers, social scientists, political theorists, uh, legal theorists and AI researchers and gene editors and neurotechnology people together to start figuring out answers to these questions before it's too late. Because, you know, we are going to have gene editing. Do we want to allow people to pay to have their children become uh, more intelligent than they would otherwise have been? Do we want neurotechnology that allows us to connect two minds together uh, and turn them into a single conscious entity. Hmm. Well, we better figure it out, because otherwise the market is going to make that decision. Um, speaking of uh, future uh, generations, uh, we have a rather fun question from the audience. So let me, says Professor Russell, if you have children, I know you do because you said they're here, <laughs> uh, on a scale from 1 to 100, how concerned are you for their futures due to the risks of, uh, of AI? where 90 equals regularly lose sleep? That's <laughs> <laughs> a, a great question. So, yes, I have, I have four children. Um, and uh, this is probably actually one of the most common questions that I'm asked when I'm speaking to non-technical really? audiences is, um, you know, what type of jobs should my children be thinking about? Uh, you know, what types of career paths are going to exist in 20 or 30 years' time? Should my children learn AI so that they can ride this wave uh, rather than being drowned? Um, so in, in terms of the, the existential risk, uh, which would come from, you know, as Alan Turing said, the machines taking control. Because once they take control, so to speak, um, there's really no longer anything the human race can do to ensure its continued survival. It might be that the machines allow us to continue or not, right? We will be in the same position as the gorillas are with respect to humans, right? There was this little thing that happened a few million years ago where one branch of the primates uh, ended up more intelligent than the others. Um, and so all the other branches now continue to exist basically because we allow it and some of them have already gone extinct as a result of competition with humans. So we don't want to be in that situation. I believe it's possible to develop AI systems uh, that are provably safe and beneficial, that we can retain control over, that actually want to be switched off. That's a really important thing, right? If we want to switch it off, it needs to want to be switched off. And that's a consequence of the theory that I'm working on. But it's not a property of the kinds of AI systems that we're building now. Um, so on the other questions, you know, what is the future of our coexistence with machines? What types of lives will people have? How will they continue to have valuable economic roles when AI can do all, pretty much all the jobs 
uh, humans can do. I think that's a really important question for policymakers because my guess is that the value that we can provide will be much more of an interpersonal nature. It's not going to be the value that um, a factory worker can provide because, as we know, those types of jobs are already being automated out of existence. Uh, it's not going to be in um, routine clerical work. I mean, a simple way of putting it, I know, Jerry, you don't necessarily agree okay. uh, with, this is, with this line of argument, but if, if, if you can no longer sell uh, physical labor and you can no longer sell mental labor, it's not clear that there's another thing right, that, that the human race can fall back on uh, except we might call it interpersonal or emotional or empathic uh, capabilities where we have this sort of intrinsic comparative advantage over machines because, uh, because we know what it's like. Well, right? uh, And I give this example in the book, right? What's it like to hit your thumb with a hammer, right? Who's done that? Right? Most of you, who, and some, who hasn't done that? Right? A few. Okay, well, how would you find out what it's like if you didn't know? Right? You would just hit your thumb with a hammer. You say, oh, now I get it. Now I understand why people are so upset when they do that. Right? But there's nothing a machine can do to find out what it's like. Right? They can at best make empirical correlations uh, and assume that it's unpleasant, but they don't know what it's like. They don't know what it's like to be uh, left by your lover. They don't know what it's like to lose a parent or to lose a child or to lose a job or to be promoted or any of the feelings of what it's like to be human. And so there we have this comparative advantage. And there are also things that we just don't want to be done by machines. Right. Uh, I imagine that at some point in the future there'll be a profession that we might call luncher, right? Someone who's really, really good at having lunch with you, right? Where you, you have lunch with them, you go away feeling much better about yourself, entertained, amused, wiser, more positive, uh, and so on, right? Um, and uh, you wouldn't get those feelings if that, if that was a robot. Well, uh, so, so we'll see. Um, the, dif- the difficulty is that um, most of these interpersonal uh, jobs right now are, are low status because they are, uh, they are not based on real scientific understanding. If you compare babysitting with orthopedic surgery, right, my children are actually more, impo- more important to me than my arms and legs, right? But we pay the orthopedic surgeon a hundred times or a thousand times as much per hour as, as the babysitter. Not here in the Bay Area. <laughs> so, um, and why is that, right? Well, it's because the surgeon gets to depend on literally thousands of years of medical research on how to do this effectively and successfully. Whereas, um, you know, I remember one of my babysitters when I was seven trying to teach me to smoke. (laughs) And and if we had, you know, a real science of of how to be a wonderful companion for a child, 
um, based on the individual psychology, psychology of the child and so on, uh, and the training processes to go with it, uh, then we would think of those as high-status professions just as much as the surgeon. So there's a lot of science we haven't done. The human sciences have been enormously neglected, and we have to catch up because those are the sciences that will form the basis of uh, our economic future, in my view. Well, the thing you and I agree on is that the future of work is more interpersonal services and uh, things that are performance-oriented. We're not going to want to go see four robots play a string quartet. You know, to, uh, we don't want to watch them play basketball. So there's plenty of... Uh, that's where we may differ. Is I, I think the historical evidence shows there'll be plenty of such work in the future, but that's a different hour of conversation, I'm sure. Uh, one thing you said I'd, I'd really like to focus on for the audience, and I'm afraid we're out of time, uh, and then I'd say a few words in, in closing. Uh, you made a point that I think is very important, which is that we are currently training AI systems, but the truth is that AI systems are also training us. And that's the, one of the perhaps bigger dangers, is that we will become a part of their uh, the optimization algorithms inside these, you know, whether that's buying stuff from Amazon or staying on social media to read another couple of posts or whatever it might be. Uh, I think that most people are not as aware of the fact that they are the commodity that is being sold. And uh, they're not in control of that at this time. And, and manipulated, and it's going to get worse. I mean, this, get way worse. Social media algorithms are really simple machine learning algorithms. You are just a clickstream to them. They don't know that you have a mind or a body or a brain or politics or anything. They don't even understand the content of the things that they're sending to you. Yep. Right? They just learn that this is the right thing to send next to get the person to be more, more click-producing in the future. Mm-hmm. Yes, if we can make that, uh, we, this is the thing to send next to make them more empathetic and knowledgeable and rational human beings, that would be a, an improvement over the current state of the art, certainly. Yeah, in the meantime, I think actually there are certain classes of algorithms called reinforcement learning algorithms that we should literally ban hmm. in those types of user-facing roles because by definition they are going to manipulate. Yep. Good. Um, well, unfortunately, we, we are out of time. Uh, I want to thank uh, uh, Professor Russell. Uh, and um, let me see, I'm supposed to say uh, you'll be sticking around for signed copies of his book, highly recommended. Um, And if you want to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making both virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit uh, commonwealthclub.org slash events. So I think we can thank uh, Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.